Thank you and good morning. It is my uh, delight and, and gratitude really to be with you this morning. Uh, as, as was mentioned earlier, you ever one of those mornings where everything gets in the way of what you want to do? Uh, came in last night and uh, they put me up in the what we affectionately call the Brown Cottage, which is three quarters around the lake there at uh, Lost Valley. And um, gave me a golf cart to get back there because the lake is up high and that road is uh, washed in. And so uh, that sounded like fun. And uh, got back there and had a great night's sleep. And I thought, you know, I'll sleep in a little bit this morning. I, 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 I need that. And um, then I got out to get in that golf cart to go back around the lake to where my car was. And uh, the brake had not held and it had slipped down into the lake. And uh, so I thought, you know, it's not that deep. I can just get out enough to get it back out. And uh, it's, it's a sorry electric golf cart. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I had to push it. And then I slipped and I fell in the mud. And so if you, I'm, I'm grateful that you got kind of dim lighting here because <laughs> you would see that my knees and Stomach and elbows were covered in mud about an hour ago. And uh, then, uh, of course, there's no cell phone uh, power there. And uh, so the only way to get to my car was to walk around the lake. It was a beautiful morning for a long, long walk. And um, thank God I'm here. And... Um, um, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Uh, I know that all of us have a temptation to uh, take our situation and to try to kind of compare it to other people around us. And it's a really poor idea to do that, generally, because whenever we do that, we're doing it with a loaded prejudice. We're either extremely grateful and we compare ourselves with people who really have it far worse than we do. Um, or we're feeling kind of cheated and we can always find somebody who seems to have it a whole lot better than us and saying, Lord, I thought, I thought you loved me and I thought and whatever. And The Apostle Paul warns us against this. He says, we don't dare classify, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who committed themselves. Um, but when they measure themselves by one another and they compare themselves among themselves, they do not show good sense. Uh, one translation says that when they compare themselves with one another, they show how stupid they are. Um, and I'm not sure which one is the more accurate. But I get the point that it's a dangerous thing to do that. And so I discovered in Psalm 73 uh, the account of a person who went through that journey. And this morning I'd like for us just to go through that journey for the sake of a really good reminder of where our mindset should be. Uh, if, because there's always someone who has it better than us. There's always someone who has it worse than us. And we are better off looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want for my life? Amen. 
And how are you going to guide my life? Uh, I don't want to be trapped by the enemy. Because, see, the enemy doesn't care which way you fall in the mud. Uh, he doesn't care if you fall being arrogant, thinking you got it so much better than everyone else, or if you fall in the mud by bitterness, thinking that you didn't get what you deserved. Either way, you end up in a place that you can't really honor the Lord. So Psalm 73 is a very transparent psalm today uh, by uh, the psalmist who uh, is known as Asaph, and he says this, Truly God really is good to the upright. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped and fell because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he sets us up with a scenario, and he's going to lead us into the entire process and the emotions that he felt when he was in this situation. He begins by saying, you know, I get it. God really is good. But I remember a time when I forgot that. And I forgot it because um, I started looking at people who I thought had it better off than I did. And I, I began thinking that God did not really keep his promises the way he should have. Because I, I was good. I was righteous. I did the right thing. And look what they got and look where I am. And that's where his foundation is for this whole um, proclamation today. And so then the next part, he begins to tell us how he felt about them. Uh, what his perspective was. And whoever put that cold water there is a messenger of God. <laughs> he says this, They have no pain. Their bodies are always sound and sleek. They never get in trouble like others are. I don't know about you, but I mark a lot in my Bible. I interact with my Bible, and sometimes I put underlines, sometimes I put question marks, sometimes I put exclamation marks and all kinds of stuff. And in my Bible, Psalm 73 is the one of the most marked up passages of Scripture because there's so much to respond to. And then there where he says they're not in trouble like others are, I've got a little note there that says the others is him. He's comparing himself to them. And he says, they're not in trouble like I am. They're not plagued like other people I am. Therefore, their pride is like a necklace around their neck. Their violence seems like a garment that covers them comfortably. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and they speak malice. And loudly they threaten oppression to everyone around them. Their mouths even speak against heaven, and their tongues are heard all over the earth. And inside of his heart he says, why can't I be like that? Why can't I have that kind of power? Why can't I have that kind of influence? Why aren't I in the place where I have got it so good that everywhere I go, people step out of my way. That's where I ought to be. And then he says this about how other people see them. Therefore, everybody turns and they praise them. 
They find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there really knowledge in the Most High? These are the wicked. Always, and again, there's, he begins to introduce these really extreme adjectives and, and, and all, and, and it reminds me, as soon as I read it, of when uh, my wife and I went for premarital counseling. We went to Southeastern Bible College, and uh, at that time, this is back in the early 70s, and um, there were rules, all kinds of rules, about how long your hair was and, and when you could wear skirts and when you couldn't wear, when you could wear pants and all that for girls and, and what time lights out were, was. And they even had a, a, a half hour every afternoon where it was called quiet time. And during quiet time, no one was allowed to drive a vehicle. No one was allowed to play any music. And for that half hour, you had to be wherever you were sit tight and just meditate on the Lord. And uh, it sounds maybe now like a kind of an oppressive, controlling thing, but I was really grateful for it. It helped me understand how important it is to be quiet, to trust in the Lord. Um, but part of the, those rules were you couldn't get married during the uh, winter break, during December, um, without getting permission from the president of the Bible College. And I think that's because a lot of young people go to school in September, and all of a sudden everybody falls in love. And, um, and uh, it's kind of the thing to do. Everybody couples up, and uh, they used to call them bridal colleges, not Bible colleges. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the school wisely knew that it was probably a good idea to put the brakes and to at least delay to the summer for weddings to happen. And... Uh, and, and an odd thing happened. Uh, Frances and I wanted to get married, and I went to talk with her father about that. Her father was an evangelist. He was also a former Golden Gloves boxer. And uh, every time I met him, he would bring out his rope and skip a little bit and show me his gloves. And, and I got the message, you better be good to my daughter. And uh, so I went to him somewhat afraid, and I said, uh, uh, bro Brother, Brother Wasden, uh, I'd, like I'd like to get permission to, to have Francis's hand in marriage. We'd like to get married next summer. And he looked at me and he went, well, no. No, that won't work. And I thought, oh, no. What, I, never, I didn't think about him saying no. Uh, <laughs> do I have to pick up the boxing gloves and, you know... <laughs> have a contest here, and, and then he surprised me. He said, why don't you get married in December? Because I've got meetings booked all summer, and I won't even be in Florida in the summer. And I thought, what? This is now the end of October, and he wants us to move it to December. And then I thought, you better get it while the getting's good. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. We'll get married in December. And then I, dominoes began to fall, and I realized I had to go talk to the president of the Bible college. And so we went and talked to, to Cy Homer at the time, and uh, he was very kind and gracious, uh, but he was also smart. And he said, I'll give you permission on basis of one thing, that you go to Dr. Sharp for premarital counseling. Well, Dr. Sharp was the head of the psychology department. And so I, I think he was wanting to check Francis's head, you know. Uh, 
And it was really, it was a very profitable thing. And I encourage any of you who are considering getting marriage, uh, pre-marriage counseling uh, by, by a good uh, person who loves the Lord is a good thing to do. And uh, you know, there's only the one thing I remember, and it connects to this passage. And Dr. Sharp said, if there's a piece of advice I can give you about avoiding conflict in the future, is avoid extreme descriptions of things. Like, never say always or never. Because as soon as you say that, uh, those are fighting words. Your partner will think, never? Well, that's not true. And so, like, when a spouse says, you always leave your underwear on the floor in the bathroom, that other spouse thinks, well, no, I don't. I can remember twice I hit the hamper. And when you say, no, I don't, then the other person says, are you calling me a liar? Well, are you calling me a liar? And all of a sudden, you've got this level of conflict that has nothing to do with the original issue. And so he says, avoid saying these extreme descriptive words like always and never. But here the psalmist goes and he says, Always they are at ease. Always they're increasing, increasing in riches, in riches. Verse 13. And now it's totally all in vain that I kept my heart clean and I washed my hands in innocence. All day long, every day, I am plagued and I am punished. Every morning I think I'll just go eat worms. It's kind of there in the Aramaic between the verses. Uh, you could tell how badly this guy is feeling based on a poor comparison that he has made. He compared himself to someone he really doesn't know very well, he sees from a distance, makes all kinds of assumptions, not only about them, but about the attitudes that everybody else has about them, and really what he's doing is he's projecting his own attitude on everybody else. And he's building this case to say, God, you're not fair. Verse 16 says, and this begins a turning point in his attitude. If I had said, I am going to tell everybody on the way about this, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. little sidebar here. Our psalmist has some wisdom underneath all of his stupidity. And his wisdom is, when you feel miserable, don't find a whole bunch of other people to tell about. Be careful who you share your thoughts of misery with. Because we have a tendency to only seek out other miserable people. And then we get into a competition on who's more miserable and whose misery is more justified, right? And so he says... If I would have talked about this to other people, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. Now, this is a really important sidebar for the psalmist. Not only have we messed up our own mind with improper foundations of, of perspective, not only have we accused everyone else of having the same bad attitude that we have, but if, if we talk about it and we share it with other people 
who we think might also appreciate it, we become untrue to God's children. We commit not only a sin against ourselves and our own attitude, but we commit a sin against the body. Because as human beings, we are talkers. Like God, who spoke the world into existence, our language has power. Our language creates. Our language curses and blesses. What we say to other people is not just a freedom of expression. It is seeds that we plant in the hearers. And so the psalmist says, if there was one thing I did right when I was really feeling bad was I kept my mouth shut. I mean, it's just remind that to you. All of us will come to those places where we feel um, life has been unjust. All of us will come to situations where we feel like someone who got a good deal shouldn't have and we should have. I guarantee if it hasn't happened yet, it will. It's just the nature of the world. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have trouble. It's a troubled world. And so you need to guard yourself up for stuff you know is coming, and it's coming. And so he says, be really careful about how you share this. When he does share this, he puts it into a psalm that has the beginning and the end, so it ends up being beneficial. So it's okay to tell other people about your struggle once you're through it, once you got the answer of how to get through it. When you're in the middle of it, go to a counselor, go to a pastor. Don't just broadcast it on Facebook or, or Instagram. You know, tell everybody in the world how bad the world is and how bad everyone else is and how you deserve it better because as soon as you do that, you are going to be a magnet for dummies. You're going to start the dummy club. And the dummy club is not going to be a good club for you or anybody who's in it. Okay? So the psalmist is real, real careful here. And he says, when I thought about how to understand this verse 16... It seemed to me a wearisome task. And, and, and in the midst of my humor, I, I don't want to um, be judgmental in the, and to say that it is a hard thing. When you are in those dark places, it's nothing to be made fun of. It's a wearisome, and it, it's almost a sacred place because you are in a dangerous place where you could end up in real serious trouble. And so it's important for us to be cautious for dealing with people like that and, and ourselves, when we're in that situation, it is a wearisome task, the psalmist said. And then verse 17. Remember I told you I marked in my Bible? In my Bible here on the side, I've got a big star, a big arrow. I've circled the first word. I've underlined the rest of it. And then I made a little note at the end of it. Okay? So that tells you how important these next simple verses are. And it says this. It was wearisome until, and that's the word I circled, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And my note along the side says, I wonder how long he had avoided it. Because in my own life, in my own experience, when I've been in those tough, dark, down south, they call them mully grub seasons, when I've been there, um, I have found reason to not go to church. All kinds of good reasons. One of my best reasons was 
I'm preparing for ministry, and nobody's paying my school bill, so I need that work overtime on Sunday. I got triple time on Sunday at this job I had, and so, man, I, I really need that money because all that money is going to pay my Bible college bill, and it's going to get me in the ministry, and so it's all a really good reason not to go to church. Beware. When you start locking up good reasons to not go and to gather with God's people in God's house for God's purposes, you're in trouble. There should be like a little idiot light that's on our dashboard that lights up. Warning, warning. Otis Buchan headed for trouble. Warning, warning. When you want to avoid the house of God, there should be a sensor in you that's saying, something is not right. I should love the house of God. I should want to be with God's people. What is it that's going on in my head right now that's trying to get me to not be there? He says, until I went in the house of God, and look what happened when he went to the house of God. Then I perceived their end. Wow, you really do have them in a slippery place. You make them to fall to ruin. Notice what he had said in the beginning of the story. As for me, I almost fell. And then he sees that these people that he was lifting up on a platform and saying, wow, they got it so good compared to me, he says, wow, they are really in a slippery place. You're going to make them fall to ruin. In a moment, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to swept away by terror. Man, that's like a really bad dream that when you wake up, you don't even want to remember it. He begins to have an entirely different perspective. Before he saw them as the ideal to be modeled after, as the standard that said he was being unjust, as the way that everyone else honors and glorifies, and he had a total misshapen, filtered image of the persons that he was comparing himself with in order to say that he was being cheated. When he goes to the house of God, he gets clarity. He gets perspective. How is that? You know, when we come to the house of God, especially in his time, it was the only place where you heard the Bible read. The word of God was pronounced. The truth of God that's eternal was declared, and all of a sudden there was another perspective. When he went to the house of God, he went to a place that was ordered around the presence of God. Every place had its purpose, had its message, had its signal. He went into a place that the people who were there, their job was to point your attention to who God is and what God wants to happen in your life. All of a sudden in this place, the whole world goes through a filter of wisdom and truth. Out there in the world, you got all kinds of filters, all kinds of voices, all kinds of people telling you how things really are. They might say things like, well, you know, they've always been told this, but the reality is this, sir. They say, well, you know, you can't help it because you're such and such. You're always going to be treated such and such. You're going to have all kinds of voices twist your perspective into a perspective that is entirely contrary to the wisdom and vision of God. And the more you see that, the more you're going to believe that. And the more you believe that, the more you're going to defend that. And the more you defend that, you're going to act in ways of faith on things that isn't true. Now, faith is a really good thing. But faith, if it's not put in truth, is a, 
is a powerful thing for your destruction. If I have faith in a lie, I'm in trouble. If I have faith in a cheater, I'm in trouble. Our faith is only good as when it's faith in God, when it's faith in His purposes. It's not faith in what I want from God. It's faith in Him because He's the provider. He's the giver of every good gift. He's the lover of my soul. He's my Savior. He's my healer. He's my deliverer. He's my life. I want to believe and trust in Him. And when he realizes how his perspective has changed, he says, man, it was like I was in a really bad trip, a dream of some sort that everything was topsy-turvy. And man, it was so bad that even, even when I woke up, I didn't want to remember that dream. One of the first dreams that my wife had after we were married, I found out because we were very poor at Bible college, and we had, we, we had only a, one bed in our mobile home, and it was a twin bed. And, uh, and so we slept in this little twin bed, and at first it was really a wonderful thing. Until. <laughs> until she had this dream, this dream that I had cheated on her. And when she woke up, she put her back against the wall and one foot on my hip one foot on my shoulder, and shoved my carcass out of that bed. And I woke up, and I said, what are you doing? She says, I had this terrible dream. You cheated on me. And I said, it was your dream. <laughs> Have I ever done that? Well, no, but I want to remind you, you better not. You know? <laughs> the psalmist says that the memories of things that are not true are like really bad dreams. And we don't even want to go there after we know the truth. And then he has some contemplative thought about when he was in that dark place. And he describes it very well. It goes like this. Verse 21. When my soul was bitter and when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. Now say something with me. Initially, it's going to be a little tough, but, but it'll, it'll be freeing in a moment. You'll, you'll, let's see. When I'm bitter, I'm stupid. Now put that all together. When I'm bitter, I'm stupid. Now some of you are going to say, well, I don't like you saying stupid. That's kind of a harsh word. And I want to say, it's a truthful word. Bitterness never does anybody any good especially the person who's bitter. And he's confessing that his perspective was driven by this bitterness that God didn't do what he wanted him to do. God ever not do what you wanted him to do? Boy, this morning I wanted God to have that golf cart run right. And, uh, and I had a lot of good reasons. Lord, I've come all this way. The people of Gaylord Church are going to hear a really good word this morning and and, you know, to have your servant out here laying in the mud with this, you know, Lord, I lay hands on this golf cart. Let it start in Jesus' name. And, and, and I put that pedal of the metal and it just went, mm. <laughs> and, and for a moment, I was bitter. I have to confess. For a moment, I was bitter. And then I remembered this verse I was going to be preaching on. And, uh, and I said, don't go there. 
You don't want to get stupid. You don't want to get stupid. Don't go there. And I've learned the hard way through life that as soon as the stuff that begins to lead you into sin happens, shut that bud down. Hit it quick. Don't savor it for a moment. Don't take time to think for a little while, well, you know, I've got good reason to be bitter. The way they treated me and what they did to me, bitterness is the least of what I should feel. And, and the enemy wants you to wallow in that bitterness because the more you wallow in the bitterness, the more what? The more stupid you're going to be. And the enemy loves stupid people. It's like a stupid fish. He's already nibbled on your worm and your hook three times, but you lay it out there and he does it again. Stupid! And the enemy knows that we can be stupid when we're bitter. And he, he has a, a way of describing this stupidness, it's, and it's not just being uneducated. It, it has to do with being an identity. And he says, it was like I was a brute beast toward you. I had become more of an animal than I had been a spiritual being. You know, the difference between us and, and the animals is not that we all have blood. It's not that we don't all have a heart. It isn't that we all don't have toenails. It, you know, all those things. So there's a lot of similarities between us and our dogs, our cats. What's the difference? The difference is God breathed the breath of life, His image into us. And His image doesn't mean that God looks like us. The imago Deo, the image of God, has to do with the identity of God, the thought processes of God, the ability to understand the future, to make a plan for that future, the ability to be creative with a standpoint of understanding beauty, the ability to understand there are things that are right and good and things that are wrong and evil. All of that comes out of this breath of God that we have. And he says that when I was bitter, I was depending more on my animal instincts than I was on my spiritual God-breathed instincts. That's a very important thing to realize. Because as long as we're in the flesh, we wrestle with, we wrestle with both of those, don't we? As long as we have these bodies that have certain needs and drives and, and situations, these bodies dictate a lot of how we think and feel until... We discipline ourselves to think over our body, over what we physically feel. The enemy wants to tell you, go with your feelings and you're being true to yourself. But Jeremiah says, the heart of man is desperately evil. Who can know it? I got to be honest and look in the mirror sometimes and say, you know, there's part of you that I don't like. There, there's parts of you that are still sin-damaged. And i got to make sure that I keep those parts in the right places. I need to keep my mind stayed on you. The Word says, um, I, Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God, right? The best possession put in the blessed place for the very best purpose. Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. That's begin happening here for Asaph and for his journey out of bitterness. And then he begins to say, I was like a wild, dumb animal. 
driven only by my instincts and my want at the moment. But nevertheless, this is the next key verse. Nevertheless, circle, underline, I am continually with you. Our brother mentioned about times that we praise, three times a day, seven times a day. Continually, the praise of the Lord will be in my mouth. Why? Because I'm aware that the Lord's presence is with me all the time. Awareness makes a really big difference. When we're aware of God's presence, we think differently. When we're aware of God's presence, we realize there are more choices than we did before. When we're aware of God's presence, we're a little more aware that we're being watched. All of those are good things. The more the enemy can believe and have us believe that somehow God is busy doing something else right now, that we're in this place where he doesn't see, he's not aware, and it doesn't matter, the more we're becoming available prey, the more we're becoming available with a mindset that is much more like an animal than it is like the holy God to breathe life into us. Nevertheless, I am continually with me. As a matter of fact, you're not only with me, you hold my right hand. Everywhere we go, you hold my hand. One of the things my wife tells me often when we're walking, because I hold her hand, she'll say, I love the fact that you still hold my hand. And I said, well, I do it because I know you like it. (laughs) And it's true. I want her to know I love her. But it's also true because I know she loves me. And we can walk everywhere holding our hand together. It's been a tough year this year. In December, they uh, told my wife that, uh, to go make preparations, that I was not going to come out of the hospital alive, but God. And, uh, and she stood with me. And she, and, but if you know Frances, Frances is a practical person. And so when she was told, I'm a goner, he's not coming out, what did she do? She prepared for a funeral. She called my best friend and asked him if he would preach my funeral. Talked with some people that she knew I appreciate their music and could you sing it? it, it. She had a great funeral. I, I, I wish I could have been there. You know, <laughs> it, it was beautiful. But that was her way of caring for me. Don't misunderstand that as a lack of faith. It was saying, what do I do when my godly husband has died? I prepare an honorable funeral for him. That's the way I'm going to express my love for him. And so she was there. And uh, and it's a a long story. I won't take this morning. But when the doctor finally came in my room and he said, uh, after never having a conversation with me before, it was always at the doorway with all the mask and gown and all this stuff on, He came in my room. He took all his stuff off. He pulled a chair up next to my bed, and he said, Mr. Buchanan, I've got to shake your hand. And I shook his hand. I said, Doc, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate you and all the help here to get through this. And he said, with tears in his eyes, he said, don't thank me. He said, three months ago, I buried my partner, and he wasn't half as bad as you are or were. And I did everything I could to save his life, and he died. I don't know why you're alive. 
And I said, well, Doc, I've got a lot of people. And their, their church I had pastored the Sunday that they had called my wife and said, uh, I'm not going to come out alive. She had called the church and everybody who was in the house of the Lord that morning, Pastor Brooks McElhaney, the pastor who succeeded me at Northville Christian, announced the whole body. He says, you know, the report isn't looking good for Pastor O. If you've ever wanted to say something to him and you didn't have that opportunity, we're going to have notes available for everybody here. And they passed out cards to the whole congregation and everybody wrote incredibly kind notes and memories and stuff like that and they brought it to the hospital and, uh, and the night that the change happened in my body, I was going through those cards and letters and I was reminded how wonderful the people of God are and how even some of the people who caused me a lot of pain uh, said some nice things. <laughs> and, and I realized, you know, that's life. That's the body of Christ. We sometimes have tough moments, but when push comes to shove, we love the Lord, we love each other, and we walk through that. And, and I shared with him, I said, and I had this big bag of all these cards, and I said, all these people were praying for me. And he said, well, I don't know what happened, but keep doing it. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I don't know what I wanted to say. I got to shake your hand. And so I share with him about the Lord. And, you know, I wish I could say he, he prayed the fair prayer of faith. That didn't happen. But he just said, I'll keep that in mind. And I said, listen, everyone who you are working with, I'll pray for them for your future as well. Let me pray for you, Doc. And I prayed for him. And, and he went on. There are times in our life when we have to know that we know that no matter what we're walking through, the Lord is with us. The moment that the change happened, I sat on the edge of my bed and I felt kind of strange. I said, Lord, all my life, I have preached salvation, the power of God, and the reality that 10 out of 10 people die. When I left our church, prepared this little notebook of, of things they called O-isms. And they said, if there's something that Pastor O has said that you always remember, what is it? And they collected them all together, and I have this nice little notebook. And, and one of the O-isms is Pastor O always said, 10 out of 10 people die. It just depends on if you're ready. And, uh, and I sat on the edge of the bed, and I reminded myself of my own words, and and I said, Lord, I'm ready to go if it's time. But I always thought that there would be some kind of signal, you know, some kind of, you know, angel or something that would say, hey, it's time to let go and come home. And I said, but I'm not getting anything, you know. So, so what's the deal? And I'd watched football that afternoon, and, and, uh, and so there was this little small voice that said, what do you want? And I thought, Lord, it doesn't matter what I want. What do you want? I want what you want. And the voice said again, what do you want? And I never thought about that I had a choice. I thought about my grandkids. I thought about my wife. I thought about people I love and the ministries that I get to be a part of and the life I get to live in Jesus' name. And, and I thought about heaven. 
It'd be nice to be with the Lord. It really would be a good thing to not have all the struggles. What do I want? And so I said, Lord, I think I, think I want to live a while longer. There's some things I'd like to get done. And that little voice said, okay. And so at that moment, I realized I had to fight to stay alive. And so I stood up for the first time in three days, had this big hose up my nose, blowing moist, uh, high-level oxygen in my, in my throat. And, and I remembered I'd been watching football, and so I, I thought... And I said to my lungs, I'd never done this before, but I spoke to my lungs, and I said, Hey! You guys were not created to be quitters. We're on a gold line stance here. If we don't step up now, the game is over. It's time to get your job done. And so I took a deep breath and got dizzy and uh, fell back on the bed. But from that point on... From that point on, I was getting a little bit better. My oxygen levels began to come up, and, and uh, three days later, the doctor said, I, I'm amazed. I'm going to sign that you can go home. And uh, I thank God for that because we have this God who really is wanting to hold our hand and always be there with us. And it's so amazing that we who have the opportunity to have God holding our hand would be looking at other people instead of him. Comparing ourselves to anyone else except him. Years ago, I came across a, a little illustration that, that always makes me laugh inside. And we know the parable, the Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, Right? Humpty Dumpty had a what? A great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But did you know that the king did come occasionally and see Humpty laying in the alley and saying, Humpty, I want to hold your hand. My, king, my horses and my men couldn't put you together. I can. Just take my hand, Humpty. And for the first few trips... Humpty found reasons to say, no, thank you. He looked at the broken bottles and the sunlight glistening and saying, you know, in a strange kind of way, it's kind of nice here. He said, well, you know, I haven't got as bad as some people. Some people are crushed completely, and I'm, I'm just a little broken. Until finally one day, the king came again, and he said, Humpty, will you take my hand? And Humpty said, my lord, my king, he took his hand. And what the horses and men could never do, the king put him back together. And not only did he put him back together, he said, from now on, I'm going to hold your hand. And time went by until people forgot about where Humpty came from. And they would say, who is that guy who's always holding the king's hand? And they would say things like, it must be his brother. He looks so much like him. That's the opportunity that we have. The longer we walk with him, the longer we hold his hand, 
the more all of that junk and stupidity and bitterness melts away. And we have the privilege of becoming more and more like him. He ends his statement by saying this, my flesh and my heart, they might fail, but God is my strength of my heart. He's the only portion I need forever. For me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all of your works. The psalmist said, if I had told everybody about my dilemma and my stupidity, I would have been unfaithful to them. But now that I know God's presence, now that I walk with him, now that I know that he holds my hand, I want to tell everybody. I want to tell everybody there's room at the cross for you. There's room for the healing power of God for you. There's room for a perspective that changes everything that you see with him. Bow your heads with me, shall you? Lord God, we thank you that in spite of our shaded perspectives and deceptions of the enemy and even our own self-deception, that you are that hound of heaven searching and seeking and calling. You're the one who says, whosoever will may come. You're the one who says, come, drink of the fountain of life. You're the one who says, yes, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Come to me, all that labor, all that are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have been very honest with us. You have not told us just a recipe or an equation to make everything work. You've, you've made it very clear this world will be troubled and have trouble as long as we are in it. But you've also said that we can be encouraged, we can be of good cheer, we can have joy even um, by knowing that you are with us always and that there's nothing too hard for you and that ultimately you are always good even though we may not see it at the time. I thank you, Lord, for your grace. I thank you for your love. I thank you, Lord, that you have available to us a continual gift of perspective that helps us to see as you see, to know as you know, to be empowered by that truth. So even up until the last moments of this life, however, wherever that may happen, we can know that we're, our hand is in yours. And that uh, all of the other alternate plans are really ending up really scary. That the only way is the, the way to walk with you. So Lord, this morning, I don't know most of the people here. I assume it's Sunday morning and a beautiful northern Michigan day that most of them here are people who love you. But Lord, there may be some who have been distracted for a moment. There may be some here Who's, the enemy has flashed little shiny things, caught our attention, twisted our perspective, caused us to begin to believe a lie. 
And it seems so true, and it seems so just, and it seems the way things are. But Lord, in the middle of it, your voice is saying, what do you really want? Do you want me, the fountain of living water? Do you want the joy of the Lord, which is your strength? Do you want wholeness? Do you want the peace of God that beyond understanding? If that's what you really want, then know that my son's blood has paid for the, all the consequences of sin. My son's blood has bought that deal and made an open door. And now is the time, today is the day, to say, yes, Lord, yes, I want your way. I want your perspective. I want your wisdom. I want enough of the bitterness, enough of the, of the judgmentalism. I want to simply walk in the joy and the peace of yours. I need your strength to do that, Lord. I know it's not a, an easy task unless it's your yoke, and then you provide the strength and the wisdom and the courage. And so, Lord, today, I want to come to you. I want to come to you. If that's ringing true in your heart that you've been distracted and you need that sense of knowing God's vision, knowing his heart in your life, maybe it's the first time in terms of coming to faith. Maybe it's just you've been distracted by life's weariness. Would you just raise a hand wherever you are? I want a chance to pray with you. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, all over. Almighty God. Let's all stand together, shall we? For those of you who raised your hands and maybe others who have other needs, I'm sure there are people who are prepared to pray for you here. I'd like to encourage you to come to this area we call an altar. It's not where anything gets burned up. It's not where we lay dead animals. It's where we become living sacrifices. And we say, Lord, I want more than anything else to you to be Lord. I want your power and your strength. If you need that today, come on down. Come quickly. We're not going to linger. We're not going to stretch this out. We're going to just lay it out before the Lord. Say, I need you, Lord. I need your life. I need your hope. I need your wisdom. I need your perspective. Come, oh Lord God. Come and minister. Come and heal. Come and strengthen. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Lord God, oh, Lord God, we need you. We need you, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. We need your power here today. Pour out the abundance, Lord God, of your spirit in this place today. Pour out the wonder and glory of your power here today, right now. Thank you, Lord. We do this not because we are of anything, but because you are everything, O oh Lord. We need your power, strength, O oh Lord. We need your healing power. Lord, we want to resist the lies of the enemy. We want to resist the voice of that comes from those lies. We want to resist, Lord God, the voice of the world that wants to manipulate and push us into bitter places. 
We want to walk with you, O oh Lord. Walk in your fullness. Walk in your strength.